Hey everybody, and welcome just back to Shitty Book Reports, uh, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor, I'm here with my friend Mark. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel pretty good. I feel like uh, like a worn-in, lazy boy recliner, like like Marty Frazier kind of thing. Whoa. How you feel? That's, I mean, that's, you're feeling great. I feel like uh, the Rush song, A Working Man. Just, I guess that's what I am. Yeah, 24-7. 24-7. Well, 9 to 5, anyway. Uh, so they, this They started out pretty funny with their songs. Like, they evolved, definitely. They definitely they, evolved. They, yeah, their old songs are like... There's a song that's like, I think I'm going bald. <laughs> that's the yeah, whole song. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like bald. I'm going bald. Yeah, uh, but Working Man was the one from that album that actually ended up being ended up being a hit it's true yeah. that they it's also funny how they started out because like they write this song working man right and it's like yeah it's like this working class like thing and it's like no one in rush ever had a job they definitely yeah. they, they were abandoned high school that went into like superstardom like touring with kiss yeah, so that's why it's they pivoted why the, to like the ayn rand stuff yeah well <laughs> oh yeah exactly yeah they were they were like hmm this working thing seems uh you know seems like ayn rand's right it's the same thing with uh, in the introduction to that new Bruce Springsteen thing on on Broadway. He's like, you guys know I've never had a job, right? Like he's like <laughs> some working class hero, like talking about like you know in Jersey and stuff. And he's like, I've never worked anywhere. I'm just a rock star. Yeah, he's always kind of posed as like a union jack or something. Like yeah, but <laughs> I got he, like, grease on my hands and working. He wears on denim. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Okay. Um, yeah, so this is episode 48, I believe, and the only thing I know about the intro, I think we're playing another round of What If, which is a game that we have played before where we each make a list. You asked me to do 10 authors, you did 10 scenarios, and we speculate wildly on what if these two scenarios came together. So I have a list of 10 authors in front of me. Mark, you have a list of 10 scenarios, and we're just going to jumble them up and see what 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 comes of it. Yeah, so normally it would be one of us would come up with both, but I wanted to uh, split the load this time. So yes. I guess uh, since you did the authors, then I'll pick a number one to ten first, and then you okay. pick a number one to ten, and we'll figure it out. Okay. So I'm going to go with uh, three. Three? I'll keep track of these. Yeah, so what's Okay, yeah, number? I'm keeping track on my side of who's used. Uh, so number three, three is three is Mark Helprin, who was actually my book from, I think, last week, which is A Winter's Tale. Okay. So Mark Halperin, he is sort of a fantasy, reality, reality, fantasy author. All right. Then uh, you pick a number. Uh, six. What if Mark Halperin wrote a novel that took place entirely in a Costco? Ooh. Um... So for those who don't know, that's a... Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's one of those bar, like, bulk stores. Bulk stores, yeah. Yeah, so you can Sam's go there Club and buy, DJs. you know, like a 10-pound thing of ketchup or like a whole yeah. pallet of, like, you know, bottled water or something like that. All right, so Helprin does a whole novel inside of Costco. I think it would be pretty good. He'd come up with some imaginative scenarios. He's very he's known for his, like, flowery language. So it's like I was do when I was doing my shitty report on – a winter's tale it's sort of like it's kind of irrelevant like what happens he just kind of like is an interesting author so i think yeah. he could make it work he might feel too limited though because like his from what i know of a winter's tale which is the only book i've read of his but it's very sprawling like it's not limited to 
the bounds of reality or even like it's written in New York City, but he keeps like, I'll go upstate, like I'll go all over the place. So it might, he might feel very limited. So that That's kind of like Costco and Sam's Club, like that, those places did feel magical as a kid though. Like Definitely. My, my family never had like the membership, but mm-hmm. I remember I would, I've gone there like, I went there just a couple times, like with maybe my friends families similar, like similar sort of to thing. me that my family yeah. was like that well you never had the membership either and then when you so, went to like sam's club it was like what the hell is this yeah the free samples <laughs> and then like they have shit like trampolines like mounted horizontally like on the, <laughs> yeah. on the walls right. so you yeah, could yeah. like see them and you could the yeah, boxes were really neat. and you're like what the hell <laughs> yeah yeah and stuff like that yeah it's kind of like Just the like, first like when you first enter same feeling of like home depot like when you're a kid you're like it's so massive and you're like it's a warehouse that's a store like what is this <laughs> yeah i just want to like climb stuff so if you could maybe yeah. make it about from a kid's perspective maybe that would work yes definitely so yeah all right, uh, I'm going to go with uh, Seven. Seven is the famous um, counterculture author and figure, Timothy Leary. Okay. Timothy Leary. He was like one of those guys who was like a professor who did acid and stuff like that. Yeah. Mega doses. Uh, so what's your number? <laughs> Uh, my number, why don't we just go, I'll go straight across and also say seven. <laughs> okay. So what if Timothy Leary wrote a novel that took place entirely in a Disneyland? In Disneyland, is that, that's the one in Florida? Disneyland. Disney Disneyland, uh, no, Disneyland is California, Disney California, World is Florida. Okay. They're very similar either, though. Either way, um, so Timothy Leary. That would be probably really good, honestly. I mean, Timothy Leary, I think he wrote like a lot of nonfiction versus fiction, but it would probably be like really interesting, maybe a mix of nonfiction and fiction. Have you ever heard of a movie um, called The Florida Project? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Have you seen that movie? Deeply upsetting movie, yeah. Yeah, you've seen it. So yeah, that movie is incredible, but... Also, like the last five seconds is like the really ending. weird. Yeah, yep. where they like the kids like go into Disney World. So I feel like it would be something like that. Like it would be inside of Disney World as per your rules, but it would definitely have you know Mickey wouldn't be looking you know like his cheery self. There would be some <laughs> like acid trip. Like oh, yeah, trip, what is it? You know, trip report. Yeah, people have definitely watched Disney movies on acid, and I'm sure it's quite an experience. So yeah, I would I would read that. All right, that, that might be good. Uh, so I'm gonna go with number one. Number one, I don't know if you know who this guy is, but I always see his books on the shelf, and it's kind of just like makes me curious. But um, James Michener, do you know who that guy is? I've never even read uh, any of his books. Like, give me uh, an example. He writes like these that, books. Maybe. He writes these books where it's like James Michener, and it will be like. The book, the title of the book is like Texas. And what it is, is like a thousand page thing about like a fictional family living within the history of Texas. So it'll be like James Michener writes Alaska and it will be like about, it'll have like hard history facts about Alaska, but then each book is like a multi-generational like thing about like a fictional family living through the historical events of like a geological place. Hmm. That's like, and, uh, what's his name? Suyon Stevens. 
Yeah. I mean, I like Michener is one of those guys where he kind of has, it's like sort of that like stupid desire for like page envy, you know, like you just see like a thick ass book and you're like, hmm, I wonder <laughs> if I should read that. Um, so, so yeah, so uh, I'll do, I'll do five. Okay. What if James Michener, you got the same kind of format here, wrote a novelization <laughs> of the board game Mousetrap. So a thousand Ooh. page a thousand into, pages thing about into mousetrap um, and to be clear mousetrap. we're just talking about the like setup the uh whatever rube goldberg mm-hmm. machine right i think he would like kind of like extract from what i know of his books which by the way i haven't read any i just like know of him as an author but from what i know about his books i feel like he would like ex- extrapolate the entire history of mousetrap like he would he would like bring in like Oh, there was like the first iteration, but then they like they added like the man with the bucket, you know. <laughs> you yeah, know, they, why, they added why is the that thing. guy up on the ladder or whatever? Yeah, like he's up there because of his like father was, you know, generations ago was this or whatever. Um I probably wouldn't read it. The thing about Michener is that <laughs> that's like that same thing that i said like you have like page envy where you like want to read it's all i think people only like want to read an epic book but then i kind of investigate like a little bit further and i'm like i don't care what this guy thinks about the history of alaska um <laughs> but yeah <laughs> that's fine all right um how about number uh 10 number 10 is c.s lewis um famous author of narnia and I will, for you, I'll do number one. Uh, what if, C- <laughs> this is pretty great. What if C.S. Lewis was a devout, outspoken atheist? Ooh, the complete opposite of, of, of what, uh, what he actually is. Yeah. <laughs> so famously, C.S. Lewis, like Narnia has Christian themes, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah, these kids, like they love like the Narnia books, but then they get slapped with some like secret like Jesus. Um a devout, outspoken atheist. I mean, I feel like it would just. The is he funny more thing of a, is, he more of a Ricky Gervais or more of like a Christopher Hitchens? I think he's probably more of a Christopher Hitchens in the fact that no one really like C.S. Lewis was like this religious guy, but like no one even knows that. Like, I don't think he was very effective at converting people. <laughs> Like, it's not like people are like, yeah, I read Narnia and then I found Jesus or like, or then I started going to church and stuff. I just think that people enjoyed his fantasy more than his religious overtones. Yeah. So, you know, like Hitchens is like, you know, I don't think Hitchens is like making people into atheists. He's just like, (laughs) people just like read his books and they're like, okay, (laughs) whatever. Um, Yeah. Is Ricky Gervais an outspoken atheist? Oh, yeah, he's, like, one of the biggest ones, Interesting. probably. But it's all just, like, Jokes. you know, yeah, just trying to offend people and whatever. Mm-hmm. A lot of people find he's it a, annoying. He's a, bit of a, he's a bit of a trickster, that one. Yeah that's, what, yeah. that's what he enjoys, chaos. Exactly. So uh, I'm going to go with number five. Number five is Gary Paulson, and he is the, <laughs> he is the person who wrote Hatchet. And, so every uh, every uh, kid in America, yeah, read that book at some point. I mean, if you didn't read Hatchet as part of your school curriculum, then your school is majorly fucking up. And I will go with the number three. So what if Gary Paulson had an advice column? 
Oh, that would be pretty good, I think. He would be very practical. He would be very, he would strip away the BS and, you know, like, cause Hatchet is very much like, you know, I ate the wrong berries or like, I, like, this is what I did use my like Hatchet to survive, like blah, blah, blah. So he would just zero in on, for his advice column, he'd be like, use yeah. your emotional toolkit. This is what you have. This is what you need to f survive. I don't know. I, or I maybe like it would be bad advice. Might, yeah, he might not be <laughs> equipped. He might not be equipped to handle situations outside of like, no one's writing into an advice column like, uh, I'm lost in the woods. Right, yeah, yeah. Tell it's, me what to it's do. It's the uh, emotional wilderness of whatever. Be like high school kids having problems So he'd, So he'd be a horrible advice column. He'd be like, well, you should got to go out in the woods and get lost and then you'll find yeah. yourself. You know what I really miss when you're ta when you're speaking of advice columnists, you're like one of the only people who would like understand this reference. But do you remember in the Journal Enquirer when we were growing up, there was like this hometown newspaper where kids could like write in, like teens could write in. Oh, it was speak it out was called program? Speak Out. Yeah, yeah, Speak Out. But that there was like Speak Out for adults, though, right? and then there was Teen Speak Out. They you get responses from other people, so it would be like last week this person said this. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. It's like somewhat responding to stuff. Yeah, I really miss that. If I could get a, a copy every day of Teen Speak Out, then my life would be a better, a happier one. Yeah, they got better problems. Though They were so amazing <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. I wonder if it's still going on. Uh, okay, so what's your next number? Uh, two. Two is Dan Brown, famous author of The Da Vinci Code, Digital Fortress. You ever heard of that one? No. Uh, and <laughs> no, it, Digital Fortress is a really crazy book. I might do it for the podcast one day. Um, it's a good name. It's an insane book. It's very funny. Uh, so you did two. I'll do four. So Dan Brown. What if okay, Dan. Dan Brown what if What if Dan Brown became a stand-up comedian? Oh, he Comedy would be Central horrible. Special. He would be horrible. I feel like Dan Brown, uh, I have a complicated history with Dan Brown because he's <laughs> one of those people who drags you into, he like reignited something about an era of reading when you're like a teenager because he had like the, he had, you know, like Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons and stuff and everyone was reading them. And then I also read Digital Fortress and thought it was like so cool. And then I, I think he's one of those people that if you ever reread past your first introduction to him it's like i'm shocked that he was popular with adults because if yeah. you reread like have you read any dan brown no i, if I, you, I only like know peripherally of like the da vinci code and like the movie okay. and all yeah that shit, like but. da vinci code is like i feel like he's like the michael bay of authors where it's like that was sick when you were like 15 and then when you read it back you're like what so who's his stand-up equivalent? Dane Cook. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That works. Yeah, he he probably brought in. Yeah, that would that's what it would be. It would be like yeah, it's Dane Cook, and he brought in like he's selling out Madison Square Garden, and then you like go watch those specials again, and you're like Dane Cook's like kind of weird. Even though <laughs> I I have a newfound respect for Dane Cook because I kind of caught up with him on a podcast, and he's been doing some cool things, but. Those, yeah, those earlier specials, you're like, this wasn't funny. This was just like a dude making weird noises. Just running around and stuff, yeah. Yeah. All right, you want to do one more? Yeah. Uh, 
Alright, I'll go with um, Six. Six is someone who you have put on the podcast before, Richard Brownigan. Okay. Brownigan. What do you got for number? I think nine. Nine is... Uh, what if Richard Brodigan made a stick figure flip book? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I feel like you... That kind of fits because he does have little drawings like like uh, trout fishing in America. Like there's a little stupid uh, fish oh, drawing he have, are, But they're doodles from him or are they from some other... I think so. I think they're from him. Hmm. They might. They might not be, but he's at That's least capable of that level of drawing because I think anyone is. Um <laughs> So it'd probably be a, a little flip book of fish going down the river, but then yeah. they like go up an escalator or something weird. Yeah, it's very meditative. Like most of the flip book, like half of it is like one scene and then it like something like sudden, like, whoa, trippy. Yeah, definitely some surrealist stuff going on. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it would, you'd want to play it backwards afterwards. It'd be like uh, in a reverse. Room. Yeah. Nice. All right, so that's our game of what if for episode forty-eight. That was a pretty good one. I think. I. What do you think the best one was? I think C.S. Lewis being an atheist was probably the best. Yeah, one. that was a that was a nice entropy. Or maybe Dan Brown is the Michael Bay of books. That might be yeah. also kind of. <laughs> Although that's probably not true. It's probably like Tom Clancy or something, but. Anyway, uh, so episode 48, an even number means that I go first. And I'm going to start buying out my shitty book report this week, uh, Mark style, and pose a question to you, Mark. And I would ask you, among world leaders of any country, uh, American presidents or maybe kings, queens, you know, Genghis Khan, what have you, who is like a world leader that you have been fascinated with? Or like, maybe I should say like, who would be like your favorite, like something where it was, you know, you don't have to like, like their policies or anything, but what's like, a, who's a world leader that you got into? If any, hmm. like, do you have any advanced knowledge of someone like an Abraham Lincoln or? I don't, I, ah. <laughs> that's a tough question for me. I don't, because I I have a hard time supporting or having too too much faith in in world leaders. Uh, no, that, I mean I don't think you should have to have faith in them. The person that I'm talking about this week, I definitely don't have faith in. But just like a historical figure that you kind of like got absorbed into. Uh, maybe in school, like learning more about uh, uh FDR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a he's a fascinating one. President for yeah. three terms, the only three term president. That's uh, probably my answer. But yeah, I think I, modern no. world leaders have a lot to uh, make up for. I don't know. A lot to make up for. Yeah. Well, that's like that's kind of like an interesting thing. I think that I probably got pulled into the next book that I read and the story behind it, probably because of the current like situation of like world leaders are like kind of off the deep end uh in this current era and um so the book that i that i'm talking about this uh week but it also has sort of like an accompanying story from my life is uh a book by an 
a London historian named Christopher Hibbert. I shouldn't say London, a United Kingdom historian called Christopher Hibbert. He was like, he wrote popular um, historical fiction, not historical fiction, historical like biographies and stuff. So he's trying to adhere to the facts. And I read a book called George Ford, The Rebel Who Would Be King. So George IV was like a king of England um, back in the day. And I read this biography, and the reason why I got pulled into George the Fourth is that uh, you're sitting in front of your computer, right? Yeah. So what I want you to do right now is to Google an image of a place called the Brighton Palace. Brighton Palace. Brighton okay. is spelled like it would be, like the word bright, O-N, Brighton Palace. Got it. So take a look and, and describe to me what you see. It looks like the Taj Mahal. Right. So there is a castle in a town called Brighton. And Brighton nowadays is like the, you know, the beachside cool town of of England and London, where it's basically you can get on a train in London and in an hour and a half you can be in Brighton. And it's a place where a lot of DJs begin their careers. It's sort of like a party town, but it's also like just idyllic. It's kind of like by the ocean there's like a pebble beach there and it's very like you can you basically get there out of london and you're like i can't believe the train run was only an hour and a half or like an hour because it's very sort of <laughs> different opposite yeah. yeah yeah um so what you're looking at brighton palace is one of the kind of like historical features of brighton and it was the my obsession with george the fourth who was like a really psychotic king of england um started with brighton palace so my girlfriend at the time who is now my wife daria we took a tour and this was of any have you ever gone to a museum and taken the audio tour yes so of any audio tour i've ever taken the one of the brighton palace is probably one of the best because i was just so completely obsessed when we were <laughs> listening to this audio tour and the funny thing about the Brighton Palace, like you said, is an English style sort of like castle, but it's made to look like the Taj Mahal. And as you learn more about George IV, uh, the rebel who would be king as you're going through the, the Brighton Palace, um, is basically this guy who was king of England after his father, George III. So he was George IV. And he becomes king of England, and he's very apathetic. He doesn't want to be king, possibly like someone else who's running one of the countries right now. Uh, <laughs> maybe possibly running the United States right now. Maybe he doesn't want to be president. So there's this guy, George IV, and he sort of inherits being king, and he's kind of not ready for it. He eventually like settles into the role. But one of the things about him is that he was just the worst. Like he didn't want to be king, but he wanted to spend money like we all do. So he had all of these kind of extravagant things. One of the, one of which was the culminating in this Brighton palace that is a king. It's like, it's like a castle that was made in the image of the far East, except everyone involved with it, including King George IV, the architects and all the people involved had never been to the far East. 
but they built a castle. They built a castle based on descriptions and other people, you know, at the time there's no Google images or anything. So it's like other people's paintings, other people's impressions. So he builds this castle in the style of the far East and the outside is supposed to be like India. So it's like this Taj Mahal looking like kind of thing, but it's also like English and in a certain way, it looks like a castle and the Taj Mahal combined. Yeah, it's a mix. And the inside of it. The silhouette is is like Taj Mahal, but then the details are Right. And the inside of it, complete kind of shift in tone. Instead of going all like trying to make like a fictional India, the inside of it is a fictional China. So really? he, he, yeah, he based, the yeah, the inside of the Brighton Palace is like, there's all these like Chinese dragons on the walls and like all the, but they're all paintings that have nothing to do with anyone who was actually there. So it's like an imaginary, what if China experience? Um, <laughs> one of the main dining the halls. The inside has looks a, like, like Wes yeah. Anderson. Like, right. <laughs> Right. And the inside of there had like one of the main dining halls has like a massive Chinese dragon like hanging from the ceiling made of like bronze and iron and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> what the fuck? So here is this guy, George the Fourth, And that like that gives you a window into like he literally built the Brighton Palace, a massive castle, kind of to piss off his dad. Like his dad was still alive when he became king and he starts to like get like not like he wasn't still alive, but it was like, you know, as one king fades, the other one kind of gets like groomed. So he gets like more access to money and power and stuff like that. So he builds Brighton Palace, like basically just to piss off his dad. So that's what it started off with. And I was like, wow, like George IV is like so crazy. He even there's all these crazy details about Brighton Palace. Like he was a pretty big guy like he was like he was obviously very decadent and he had you know there were there's like weird like secret panels in brighton palace where it's like from his bedroom there was like a secret door that went to his mistress's bedroom so like so he had like an official wife and then he was like and now i have the secret door where like my like mistress lives and stuff like that really crazy he gained he was like so fat and stuff like that and a lot of there was like comics in the english newspapers about how big he was and he even there is a there's even a thing in brighton palace where he built a tunnel under the grounds of Brighton Palace so that he could walk from the castle to the stables to visit his horses and that no one would be able to see him because he didn't like how fat he was. <laughs> so this guy okay. was like, he. there was no sparing any expense. Like if he had like an idea in his head, like I want to make a Chinese castle, he would just like make it with the people's money, which is fucked up. And he was like not running the country. He was sort of just like doing whatever he wanted to do. So I wanted to read his actual biography, which is where Christopher Hibbert comes in. Uh, he's like a popular, you know, he he's the author of like probably I think it's something like 50 books. So he was like a super pro- prolific and he's one of those like historians where it's like he's like a popular historian. So like widely read like person who just writes about historical events. One of his favorite things to write about was Italy. This is the only book that I've read of his, but apparently he wrote like exhaustive like things about like the different leaders of Italy. And like he even did, you know, those people who it's like a whole biography of Venice or a whole biography of Rome. You know, he would like tackle something. Yeah. Tackle subjects like that. So he writes George fourth, the rebel who would be king. Another cool factor, like another like little like kind of, reader type thing about me reading this book is that I did uh, I did it on Kindle so 
this book is, um, according to Amazon, is 864 pages of George IV. And this is one of those things where it's like, I would probably would not have read this as a physical book. I don't think I would carry around 864 pages on George IV and like be reading it. But this is one of those classic cases of like, you get it on your Kindle and then you like look down and you're like, holy shit, I'm 50% done with this book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you're just kind of reading it along. It's a different pace. Yeah, it's definitely a different pace and kind of a different flow and everything. But I did read it on Kindle. Um, and Hibbert is just a good writer. Like I have his, sadly, he died in 2008. And I have his obituary here from The Guardian. And uh, he was described by some as the, a writer of the highest ability and by the new statesman as a pearl of biographers. He could not write a dull word if he tried and suggest, suggested the Sunday Times. He was... Um, just generous, loving, and loved by his family. You know, I mean, this is an obituary, but basically he just wrote so many books, was very popular in the UK. I actually looked up, because we've talked before on the podcast about how the English countryside is like strangely calming. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and I was jealous of him for a moment because he did spend a lot of his life in a very idyllic English town called Henley on Thames. And if something is on Thames in the UK, that means that it's on the River Thames. So Henley on Thames is probably what you actually call it, not Thames like me, stupid American. And uh, so Henley on Thames, and it's just like, you just Google like image search like Henley on Thames and it's like a beautiful little church next to a beautiful little stone bridge next to, you know, like, and it's just like, looks like a great like place. And that's like where he spent most of his time. That's where he died. That's where he retired. That's where he wrote all these wonderful novels of popular history. Um, you know, just plugging away. So I was jealous of him for a moment there when I was doing my research. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back into George the Fourth, it's like it's crazier than just him being like. As of all things, like, have you seen the movie The Favorite, Mark? No, I, so I, I yeah, there's buzz around it. Yeah, so the, like, I think maybe a year or two years ago, there was this movie, The Favorite, which was about how Queen Anne had you know like a lesbian lover. Um, I don't even know too much about the historical what if of of that, oh, that was, scenario. Uh, Olivia Coleman from uh, Peep Show, yeah. right? Yep, Olivia yeah. Coleman. Yep, that's what she won an Oscar for. And um, that movie is a good example of like. So that movie is like. So there's like really great scenes, and that almost spoil it for you a little bit. But there's really great scenes in that movie. Like apparently Queen Anne was. Um, what is it when you can't eat dairy? What is that called? Lactose intolerant. Yeah, so she was lactose intolerant, but since she was the queen and those times, like those times are just so different than our time that you can like barely fathom it. But she was like, she was a lactose intolerant, like world leader. And she would just sit there and like binge on cake and then throw up into like these like disgusting, like vases, you know, like opulent like things. And her <laughs> servants would like let her do it. You know, like it was like disgusting. And she was like a weird, like, person and there's a lot of stuff that's in that book the uh, in that movie the favorite that i saw that after i read this biography and it reminded me of like there's stuff like that with george four where it's like it's really like horrifying to think of now but it's like he was into like the idea of like whenever he would feel sick he would just like bleed himself you know where you like take mm -hmm. like a thing and like 
and like drain your blood and stuff like that. And like he would do that like all the time. And he just had so much money and power that there were like all these different like sort of like fucked up things. Like I think that there's one story of like him and his friends like before he was king, but still like a privileged lord. They like they like carted a dead horse like around like the town in London and like did all this like crazy like weird things. And that movie, The Favorite, has weird stuff like that too. Like there's a scene where there's like one of their like one of the lords is like he's got his powdered wig on but he's like completely naked and they're just like throwing fruit at him and it's like really weird and just like (laughs) that's what they were like like it's a world that is just hard to understand because so much money and power but also like what do you do with so much money and power back then you know like nowadays nowadays we can imagine like oh jeff bezos has a private plane and like he goes you know he could go wherever he wanted and you could just like buy an island or like something like weird like that like we have our different fantasies of what richness means but back then in more like limiting circumstances like part of that tour a part of that audio tour that talks about the brighton palace george four had he basically had a live like on-demand ipod orchestra who just there was like a full chamber orchestra that lived in the brighton palace that were that was his music like on demand but but when they weren't playing for him they were just sitting in a room waiting to play for him like (laughs) weird shit yeah you know like weird like like imagine that like whole scenario like you get dressed up for work and like what you do is you wait until a king asks you to play some beethoven but you're just like (laughs) sitting in this room it's like very strange, very like bizarre stuff. It, it kind of, you know, also when, you know, going through that, it's like you think of the Kubrick movie, Barry Lyndon, where it's just very strange. And um, yeah, I mean, I just got sort of obsessed with him. So I read this book, George Fourth, A Rebel Who Would Be King. Awesome book by Christopher Hibbert. It's very readable. Um, I can get down with some complaints. I have a one star review here on deck that I kind of agree with because some of it was hard to follow, but overall a good book. And if you ever just want to read about someone just so totally crazy from a different world, from a different time, George the Four was a very apathetic world leader, someone who didn't want to be in the position that he was in, but he was definitely going to have fun while he was doing it. So really awesome part of history that's just totally crazy and definitely one of my favorite sort of like stories of like world leadership and how crazy it is um so my one star review is from goodreads user renee and she says i find the royal family very interesting in the book had its moments but it's impossible to keep up with who is who i understand that people have names and titles but when they they're used interchangeably i get really lost i don't know how many brothers and sisters george had but i'm sure it's a lot and i had to google like you know a family tree or whatever she says i'm interested in the story but i think more effort was put into using flowery language than trying to engage the reader i can kind of identify with that this was one of those books where it kind of felt like you know it was that book that i don't like by gabriel marquez 12 years 100 years of solitude or whatever yeah or it's like too yeah too many family names and there is like a bit of that in here where it's like the duke of york who is also the duke of what or like the duchess or whatever like they all have different titles and he kind of demands too much of you by like thinking like oh i remember who that person is so um but yeah there's a lot of like cool like romantic intrigue like 
he's required to marry this one woman for political reasons, but obviously he has like a mistress mistress for other reasons. And like, there's a good little drama with like who his brother is going to decide to marry of how that's going to set up the finances in the future. And there's all these things that like, kind of like set up in different ways towards like him making the Brighton palace and just all these weird decisions of, money and power and abuse of power and by the way during all this like the country is like going to complete shit because the leader doesn't care about anything so (laughs) he does like official business for like an hour a day and then like does like other weird shit like bleeding his arms and eating ridiculous amounts of food that no one else can afford um goose yeah so lots of crazy stuff he had insane parties at the brighton palace like pretty much every day um so it's just interesting to think about that kind of stuff and and uh, the imagery that goes along with it. So I would definitely recommend if you wanna if you wanna feel like maybe this isn't the first time in history that the world leaders are not really someone who you would expect. Then I would guess I would check out George Four, the rebel who would be king. Nice. Yeah, it's like that. Uh, the it sounds similar in a way, but extremely detailed more than like the uh will cuppy uh, i forgot the name of it um will cuppy yeah one of the first books that i covered uh the rise and fall of pretty much everyone Everybody, oh right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that just um, those weird little factoids but yeah this yeah. is focused in on one person but it's like that whole feeling of like the world's so weird <laughs> and it continues to be it's always been weird yeah yeah that's cool. Yeah, it sounds like a good break from, like, um, fiction. Yeah, it's a good break from fiction and just one of those things that I just got pulled into, you know? It's yeah. like when you listen to a podcast about a historical figure or, you know, really anything like that, it's like this one. I went deep and I was like, wow, I love this guy. Slash hate him. Nice. <laughs> yeah, good job. Um, all right. I'm going to jump into mine now. Cool. I'm going to read the back snippet of the book I have because it was interesting. And um, apparently it was a controversial book in its time. And we'll talk about that a little bit. So here's the back. One part from the back. I'm paraphrasing. Almost immediately upon its publication in 1915, it was prosecuted and banned. Richard Addington, which I'm not sure who that is, but Richard Addington says... It is incredible that a book so passionate, so poetic, so full of the pith of life and the loveliness of nature should have been labeled as pornography. Hmm. And some more detail that's not on the back of the book. Uh, So this book that I brought today was prosecuted in an obscenity trial at the magistrate's court in Great Britain upon its Hmm. release. And over a thousand copies were seized and burned. And then after that point, it was unavailable in Britain for 11 years. Wow. So when you look back, um, you know, that's 100 years ago now. What is controversial is always changing. And then, you know, sometimes you look back and it's just kind of ridiculous where things were at. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the common sentiments today, a bunch of lo- a bunch like among a bunch of older people is that, you know, you can't say anything nowadays, like no one can take a joke or that sort of thing. But right. think about the world of 1915 and what was taboo and like, you know, mm-hmm. look how far we've come in that way. So like, that's right. just not true. Um, so I, I got a question for you. What would you say was, has been the most controversial book of our lifetime? <laughs> 
like what does a what does a controversial book look like nowadays does it even exist do we have books like is that mm-hmm. a thing anymore i think it's an interesting question because a controversial book in our time is something that probably is controversial because of how much it how much attention it attracts so like you could say something like oh like 50 shades of gray is controversial but it's like but it's controversial because it sells well Mm -hmm. and like the same thing with like like a harry potter type of book where it's like the controversy behind harry potter is like you know uh, you know, ultra religious people saying that it's witchcraft or whatever, but it's like, but it all starts from it selling really well. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be banned if it wasn't popular, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I can't really think of anything like banned other than yeah. if we're just completely colorblind to something where it's like, oh, this book. Like maybe there's books that didn't even come out. Maybe like I could definitely see that in some sort of realm of like, um, like like a Middle Eastern author, like like a book about Islam or something like that yeah, that exactly. we just like that, haven't seen yet. <laughs> no, that, that was my example. I was trying to think of like, okay, our lifetime, like what was the most controversial book in our lifetime? And um, the first one I thought of was it's on the very beginning of our lifetime, 1988, uh, The Satanic Verses by Salman yeah. Rushdie. Yeah, by Salman Rushdie, yeah. Yeah, and so that was, you know, it was about Muhammad and you know that's what led to like the the Ayatollah issuing the fatwa and like that was super mm-hmm. controversial thing like people died because of it and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that right um uh so that's the only one I could really come up with that was like controversial I think I think you're right where like 50 shades of gray was controversial too but it's like I don't know but it's controversial it? to people because they're shocked that you know mom wants to read that yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess that's <laughs> it's like it that's the con- <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Something like a Salman Rushdie or like other stuff that, that that would probably be the one that's closest to our to our lifetime. I think I think like yeah, the only the only thing I could see being like really controversial nowadays is like maybe if like a children's book was a little bit too advanced you know stuff like that mm-hmm. like trying to teach kids like yeah i don't know i could see it totally being a thing where like people freak out because there's a book that's like about like conservative values but it's like a kid's book or something mm-hmm. like shit like that mm-hmm. um you know but nothing like nothing like what i have today uh, nothing the like weird... the government banning it like coming yeah, out yeah. and being like we're burning it <laughs> the weird thing to me is that this book I've got is was controversial, but it's like you had to read this 500 page book to be to like even know. Right. You know, it was an effort to like uh, it wasn't like an easy, corruptible kind of thing. You know. Yeah, but that, that um, stuff also snowballs like there's probably yeah. tons of people who worked against whatever book you're doing. And it's like, I heard this. So that's all I oh, need yeah, to hear. Yeah. Hearsay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you read one sentence out of it. Yeah. But anyways, I read um, I read The Rainbow by D.H. Lawrence. Okay, I've never even... I've heard of D.H. Lawrence, but not The Rainbow. Yeah, I didn't do enough research on his biography for today, so I'm just going to mostly talk about the book. But um, yeah, I was a little ambitious this week. I read a pretty long book, and it's... It's fitting because apparently this was his most ambitious work. I think he's mostly known for this and the other book, uh, Sons and Lovers. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I will give him credit. It is an ambitious book because it covers 
kind of similar to how we were just talking about with uh, the book you read in different generations of in the family. And mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about a hundred years of solitude, the same sort of thing. It's this, the rainbow covers three generations of the Brangwen family. Okay. And so Tom Brangwen starts out as the uh, initial character. He's a farmer from like a long line of farmers in the Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire area of England. Do you know anything about that or the area? No, not really. It's just not... eh, probably a farm. Just farm. another shire. Yeah. So <laughs> he's uh, he's just a single guy. He ends up falling in love with this Polish woman who is a widower. And so she... Um, she already has a young daughter named Anna. So he kind of, you know, they get, they get married. And so he kind of adopts the daughter. And so then the book moves along well, describing their sort of unique relationship um, where things can be strained because, you know, they, their prior marriages and like uh, complications with the daughter and everything. So then the book kind of moves along in that way and they uh, some years pass and then eventually Anna marries her cousin, Will. Um, so then the book moves along while describing their unique relationship and marriage and then they have a daughter. So like the, the main character of this book really moves around and then the, there's always a different relationship under a focus. Um, so the, but, but pretty much Ursula... Uh, like the end of the line or whatever, she takes over about halfway through the book and kind of breaks the trend that was forming of, you know, microscopes over traditional love-hate relationships. Mm-hmm. So this book is kind of less about plot and more about feeling. Like D.H. Lawrence definitely has some beautiful prose, um, but I found like the movement of the plot here kind of long-winded, like if that makes any sense. Like, you know, some authors can describe feelings or thoughts in a really beautiful way, but then moving from place to place to get these thoughts across is kind of tedious. Right. Like the plot doesn't, didn't hit exactly, but it's more about like when you can stop and like analyze stuff than that, then it works. Cool. So I maybe felt that this book was too long. Like I thought that maybe each relationship under focus could have been its own separate book, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's not like the whole arc was really relying on a specific event it's more of just kind of um human psychology human relationships and human emotions and that sort of thing it's funny that it's around like you said this is 1915 yeah because the way that you're describing it is also kind of how i feel about like proust's work is that like the plot points are like barely existent and it's like these long like passages about like feelings yeah yeah so i liked that about this might book have been, but then, might have been a trend yeah yeah but this book i think had too much of those um the movements in the plot where mm-hmm. it wasn't really hitting you know could have just examined the like a single argument more and i would have been more like entrenched in it but it was still good but anyways let's get into what made this book controversial yeah. There's a lot of sex in this book, either implied or like otherwise, but it's not at all, you know, it's not graphic at all. It's not Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it's, it's more like whenever like that was going on in the different relationships, it would just jump to metaphor or poetry, or, you know, 
it's not Murakami. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I put this into that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not like that. It's not not like that in the slightest. You know, um, th- this. I, I don't think D. H. Lawrence would be nominated for like worst sex scene writing mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. Like, let me just. I got an example here. Uh, Love came in sunbeams between them when she was like a flower in the sun to him, feeling the radiance from the Almighty beat through him like a pulse as he stood in the upright flame of praise, transmitting the pulse of creation. Hmm. Isn't that disgusting? It's so (laughs) gross. So disgusting. (laughs) You know, it's just stuff like that. Like, Mm -hmm. mostly. Like, he only really implicitly states when characters are like, kissing each other and then past that it's like you know mm-hmm. like fire and flowers and stuff like <laughs> um burn it yeah but balance you know balanced with that um that you know description of intimate intimacy between these different people uh balanced between that is lawrence's like description of relationships where the two people just can't stand each other there's mm-hmm. like a ton of like bickering and fights and stupid arguments and really good descriptions of like the anguish of the mundane mm-hmm. where these two people are just trying to like out passive aggressive each other sounds a bit like uh if if anyone's ever seen any antonioni movies that's like all of his movies are about rich people who are passive aggressive and like can't yeah yeah <laughs> not in touch with their emotions and stuff yeah um but that's definitely one of the strengths of this book. Like two people going like, what have I got myself into? Like, I hate this. Oh, but I love this. I hate this. And um, Anyways, I guess I, I want to read a quick section that deals with the title of the book, which again is The Rainbow. Rainbow. Okay. Now there are, I think there are two parts, I'd say there are two parts of this book where rainbows are important. And one is the one that's probably most um, pointed out is at the end and it's very obvious it's you know pushed right in front of your face in the form of like an actual rainbow it's not mm-hmm. like really a symbol in the name but like the better one in my opinion is right at the transition from the first part of the story to the second and it's when tom and lydia the original couple like they marry and they settle into their life so lydia like i said came packaged with a young daughter anna And, you know, after an initial period of struggle accepting, like, this new life and this new father after hers had died, uh, there's a great paragraph where she's finally kind of okay with it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just one paragraph at the end of one of the chapters, but I thought it was really nice. Anna's soul was put at peace between them. She looked from one to the other, and she saw them established to her safety, and she was free. She played between the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud in confidence having the assurance on her right hand and the assurance on her left. She was no longer called upon to uphold with her childish might the broken end of the arch. Her father and her mother now met to the span of the heavens, and she, the child, was free to play in the space beneath, between. Nice. So that's not explicitly about a rainbow, but, you know, it's close enough for me, like the metaphor Mm -hmm. of this relationship as an arch that reaches to the heavens and you know covers over the the child in between like i thought that was that was a pretty good pretty good use of uh florid kind of language Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of there's a lot of that in here like um very talented writer 
I would I'm interested in reading maybe a shorter shorter novel by <laughs> by D.H. Lawrence. What was his time period of like? Because this was published in 1915. What's his life yeah. like? That's like, what do you know when he dies? Uh, I think it was like 1860 somewhat to like 1920s, maybe. Hmm. Cool. I think. Uh, born in 1885. Uh, let's see. He died in 1930. Hmm. Okay. His greatest novels: The Rainbow and Women in Love. Women in Love, I guess, was like a sequel to this one. Mm-hmm. It's and funny I because that I one might also have been uh, banned or he, something. He's like someone who I know the name, but I and then I don't know any of the not like the names of the books, which is weird. Like, I know he was I... na- name dropped by Will on uh, the Inbetweeners. Oh, really? At some point, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I got a um, got a one star review here that I thought was pretty funny. I forgot the person's name, but if the novel were anything like the cover displayed here, then man, would it be great. But no, it's terrible, worse than terrible. On and on and on you go, and for what? To intimately learn about three people? And I'm sorry, but as much as Lawrence tries to explain, and explain he does, too much, too much, who these people are generation to generation, still their actions and beliefs often don't make sense to me. I suppose perhaps that's part of the point. But as I've said before, sort of, Lawrence focuses too much on the point and not on the story. And I think some of those criticisms are valid, but the real funny part of that review to me is when he says, uh, if the novel were anything like the cover, mm-hmm. then it would be great because the cover of mine is just four chickens in front of a window. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's all it is. So now I, I'm thinking What I of, really wanted was a novel about four chickens. Yeah. See, one of them's white, one of them's brown, and two of them are black. <laughs> And, um, I think it's I, in front of a window. <laughs> I think the funny thing about that review is like to go on and on and learn about what intimate details about three people. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's like, yes, that is the point. Intimate details about three people sounds correct. Yeah, that's kind of what it was. Yeah, but now we need. I need to find the the chicken, the great chicken novel. See if yes. it's out there. It's definitely out there somewhere. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah, Good D. job. Yeah, Lawrence, The Rainbow. Thanks. Now I know. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter. And whatever new place comes up, we'll probably <laughs> pop, up, pop up there, too, at right. SBR the podcast. And you can email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your short stories if you want us to read and review, maybe. Uh, comments, suggestions, whatever you're feeling.